The headline read, Greyhound bitterly disappointed after finally catching mechanical rabbit. Dateline, Jacksonville, Florida. Aladdin, a greyhound that races at the Jacksonville dog track, was bitterly disappointed when he finally caught the rabbit he'd been chasing all these years and discovered it was mechanical. The rabbit was caught when it got stuck on the track, leaving it a sitting duck for the pursuing great greyhounds. I got a picture of him here. Oh, sorry, wrong greyhound. There he is. Well, it could be him. It, it is a greyhound. But anyway, <clears throat> Aladdin reportedly said, boy, do I feel stupid. I feel like such an idiot. I've completely wasted my life chasing that stupid mechanical rabbit around. Aladdin had been running at the Jacksonville track for many years, chasing various mechanical animals along the way. The notion that all these rabbits may have been fake was a huge blow to him and the other dogs. Many of them paused to ponder the meaning of their lives and wondered what the future would be like with no animals to chase. All my life I've been chasing this rabbit around thinking someday I'd be able to catch it, Aladdin said. I became obsessed with it. I admit it. It was unhealthy, but that rabbit represented something to me. And now to find out that it wasn't a real rabbit after all, well, it's certainly a disappointment. No, it's devastating. Alas, all that's left for Aladdin is to ponder what might have been. What a waste all these years have been, he said. I really don't want to get all philosophical, but Shakespeare was right. Life really is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. A quote from Hamlet, by the way. Just imagine what I could have done with all those years had I not wasted them running around this ridiculous track. I guess I'll never know. Aladdin's trainer, Bob Pratt, scoffs at the notion that his dog wasted his life. Wasted life? What else was he going to do? Go to college? He couldn't go to college if he wanted to. His grades weren't good enough. Neither were his ACT scores. But don't tell that to Aladdin. Now that he knows the truth, he insists that this dog will have his day. I'm not going to keep chasing plastic bunnies for the rest of my life, he said. There are real bunnies out there just waiting to be caught. I'm seven years old now, 49 in dog years. It's time I started to live a little. Yeah. What is true for Aladdin the Greyhound is true for us. You chase the thing that you are convinced will bring you lasting satisfaction, only to discover that when you finally sink your teeth into it, you feel disappointment rather than satisfaction. That's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes calls vanity. Striving after the wind, it's futility, emptiness, pointlessness. And that's the main message of Ecclesiastes and it's an important one for us to hear. The preacher wants us to know that you can finally catch that rabbit you've been chasing all your life and discover, like Aladdin the Greyhound, that what you laid hold of is actually a mechanical rabbit. 
That's life. There's no significance in life. It's all pointless. That's basically what the preacher has been saying from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 12 and verse 12. Everything is meaningless. It's all pointless. There, there, there's no real satisfaction in life. And as the preacher puts it so often through this treatise, everything under the sun is meaningless. All is vanity. How depressing. But the preacher doesn't leave us hopeless. In verses 13 and 14, he suddenly changes gears. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I um, like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in uh, his work, the, the message. It's kind of a, um, it's not really a translation, more of a paraphrase, but the way he puts it is this. The last and final word is this. Fear God, do what he tells you. And that's it. Eventually God will bring everything that we do uh, out into the open and judge it according to its hidden intent, whether it's good or evil. So where is the message of hope in these verses? Well, we're going to look at some key terms here. Fear God, keep his commandments, duty, and judgment. So these words or terms seem to communicate a message of intimidation, though, and not hope. But things are not always what they seem. So let's plunge into the last couple of verses of Ecclesiastes and dig a little deeper, and we will see that a message of hope does indeed emerge so let's start with the duty of man. What comes to mind when you think of the word duty? Those of you who served in the armed forces, by the way, thank you for your service. Those of you who served in the armed forces will be acquainted with the word duty. It's something that is expected of you. It is, I think the, 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 the closest the synonym I can think of for duty will be obligation. You know, whether your heart is in it or not, this is something you've got to do. But it may come as a surprise to you that the word duty is not actually in the original Hebrew. The uh, translators of the ESV and most other translations also inserted the word duty because they wanted to bring clarity to what was being said here. Um, but actually, I think the clarity might shine forth more clearly if we leave it out, which is what the original language does. So if we were to translate this word or this verse uh, more literally, uh, it would be uh, like this, for this is the whole of man rather than this is the duty of man. So what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying by saying that this is the whole of man, he said this is the essence of what life is all about. It's, it's not about life under the sun, meaning life apart from God. What he's saying is the whole of man or the, 
the, the whole expression of what life is like, it's all centered around God. Fear Him and keep His commandments. It all comes down to that. It's a sharp contrast with the previous description of what life is about, is about uh, under the sun, meaning life apart from God. Living without God, the preacher says, leads to frustration and dissatisfaction and disappointment. But living with God at the center of your life is the whole essence of life. Now, the apostles understood this. The apostle John said, he who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. And the apostle Paul said in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So how do you keep God at the center? One little illustration from the world of nature. For a long time, for centuries, it was believed that the sun revolved around the earth. And then in time, it became clear to everyone that the world is not flat. The world is actually round, and it revolves around the sun. And so there's an application for of that for us in the spiritual realm. We are not at the center where God revolves around us. God is at the center and we revolve around him. So how do we do that? How do we keep God at the center? That's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is getting at. He takes 11 chapters and the first 12 verses of the 12th chapter to talk about what life is like under the sun. That is life apart from God. And in these last two verses of his treatise, he is saying that all of this other stuff here about the, the, the things that you pursue that you think, you think will bring you satisfaction, they don't. The thing that brings you satisfaction is God. Therefore, fear him and keep his commandments and you'll find life. But how do we fear God? Now, we don't talk about the fear of God too much. It's uh, something that we, we've kind of defined as, you know, reverence of God or respect for God. And, and, and certainly, we, we do want to retain those elements. We, we do want to respect and, and, and revere God. But the fear of God surely is, is, is deeper than, than that. Uh, the Bible uh, uses the word fear some 300 times in reference to God. So this is a, a major theme in Scripture. And uh, it's a, a big mistake to downplay it. The subject becomes even more mysterious when we read something like 1 John 4.18, which says, Perfect love casts out fear, all fear. So how do we marry this dichotomy? How can we fear God while he expels all fear? Well, Scripture is full of examples of how fearing God is positive rather than a negative. For example... Genesis 42, 18, 
Joseph, you know, Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers, he wins his brother's trust when he declares that he is a God-fearing man. It was because the midwives in Egypt, the, 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 the Hebrew midwives who were in slavery in Egypt, but it was because they feared God that they obeyed him rather than the authorities who told them to throw their baby boys into the Nile. Pharaoh brought disaster on his nation because he did not fear God, according to Exodus chapter 9. And Moses chose leaders to help him on the basis that they feared God and wouldn't take bribes. That's in Exodus 18. We flip over to Exodus 20. And we see that Moses told the Hebrews that God met with him in a terrifying display of his powers so that they wouldn't sin. That's the fear of God. And the Mosaic law also cites fear of God as a reason to treat the disabled and the elderly well. You'll find that in Leviticus 19. And lest you think this is only an Old Testament idea, we should note that Jesus states this stronger than anyone when he says, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill the body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear God alone who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's in Matthew 10. Then Paul says to work toward complete holiness because we fear God. He said that in 2 Corinthians 7. And so it's clear from these passages from both Old and New Testaments that fearing God is good because it saves us from caving in to our own desires. That's why hearing someone as a God-fearing person actually makes us trust that person more. If they fear God, they are more likely to keep their word and treat others with kindness. In fact, Romans 3, which is a classic chapter on sin, says that our chief sin is this, and I quote from verse 18 of Romans 3, that we have no fear of God at all. That's the biggest sin that anyone could commit. So how do we fear God, who is perfect love? How does the fear of God take away fear? There's an article in Christianity Today by William Eisenhower. I have no idea whether he's related to Dwight or not. But uh, I'd like to read you a paragraph of an article he wrote about the fear of God. Uh, beginning a quote. Unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions so that he may reveal the truth that sets me free. 
He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin but forgives me nevertheless. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. You know, there's something to learn about fear that whoever or whatever you fear the most has control over you. Whoever or whatever you fear most will dominate your life. So fear the Lord and let him be the dominant power at work in your life. The fear of God is the first way that we keep God at the center of our lives. It's the first thing that expresses what life is all about. Now here's the second one, keep his commandments. So fear God and keep his commandments. Now along with fearing God, you know, keeping him at the center is obedience. The most important thing for anyone to do is to worship God and keep his commandments. Keeping the commandments of the Lord is an expression of our love for him. John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Then he went on to say in verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You know, we could go on all morning about the primacy of keeping the commandments of the Lord. But there, there's something I want us to see with regard to keeping his commandments. Two things, actually. One is keeping the commandments means to keep God at the center of our lives. And the second thing is you can't do it. We, we can't obey. Because of our sin nature, we are prone to sin. We are prone to wonder from the flock. And this is precisely why we need the gospel. Jesus obeys for us. As our representative, he obeys the law perfectly. He doesn't slip up once. You know, when we think about Christ, we think about his death on the cross. And we should. Uh, that is essential that we think about Christ on the cross, dying for us. But it's not just Christ's death that is important. It's his life also. You see, un unless Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, he would not be a qualified substitute or representative for us on the cross to, to die. Otherwise, if Jesus had sinned and he goes to the cross, he would be paying for his own sins, not for those of, of anyone else. So we stand in awe of Jesus, not only because of the sacrifice that he made for us, which we, we want to keep that before us, but we stand in awe of Jesus because he is perfect. He is sinless. He doesn't slip up once. And he does that so that he can represent us before the Father. And so when we come to this next word here, this next key word, judgment, I want you to keep in perspective 
the word judgment and all that's associated with that, with that, but also keep in mind that Jesus is our representative in life, that he lived a perfect life on our behalf. And so when God brings forth judgment, you know, there will be some who will not have Christ as their advocate or as their representative. So that's an aspect of a judgment that anyone should greatly fear if they are not in Christ. But if you are in Christ, and I hope that you are, if you're not, I invite you to become covered by Christ. When the judgment, on, on judgment day, there will be no condemnation for you. You know why? Well, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of Christ has set us free from the law of sin and of death. And because Christ has absorbed the judgment of God on our behalf as our representative on the cross, you know what that practically means for us? There's no more judgment that he has to place on us. He put it all on Jesus. All right. Now that we have that understanding, that, that background, let's go to this word judgment. When we think of the word judgment, well, first of all, I want to give you the context here. That God will bring every deed into judgment. Every secret thing, whether good or evil. Does that scare you? It should. I mean, we're talking about the fear of the Lord here, aren't we? <laughs> so there, there needs to be some element of, of fear. You know, if every secret thing is going to be brought to light, doesn't that scare the living daylights out of you? <laughs> but let's not talk about that element. That's the element that comes to our mind first of all. Um, I want to talk about what's down here when uh, the, the last phrase he says, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We tend to focus only on the evil thoughts. But the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes wants us to think about judgment in, in this sense. Do you know why there is meaning in life? Do you know why? It's because of judgment. It is because there is a day that has been appointed where God will judge everyone that life is meaningless. Think of it, or that life is meaningful. <laughs> I misspoke there. Think of it this way. If there is no judgment, if there is no life after death, if there is no God, then your life is meaningless. What difference does it make what you do if there is no judgment in the end? What difference does it make for good or for bad what you do if there is no God, if there is no judgment, if there is no recognition that what you did made a difference in the world? then 
do whatever you want because there would be no punishment, nor would there be any commendation. No condemnation and no commendation, which essentially means nothing, pointless, hollowness, meaninglessness. However, the preacher is saying there is judgment, and because judgment is coming, that means your life means something. From the beginning of his book, he's been saying that if there is no God, there is no meaning in life. Nothing matters. If there is no God, life really is hollow and nothing does matter. But here at the end of his book, we are reminded that this is not all that there is and that life really does matter. God's judgment means your life matters, that your life has meaning God would not bother to judge people or things who don't matter. You know, we judge things that matter, not things that don't matter. It's uh, the year 2020 coming up. And, uh, you know, every four years uh, there will be the Olympic Games. And uh, let's take one of the events in Olympics, uh, say gymnastics, for example. Uh, you get out there and you watch... Uh, I think the women are far more entertaining to watch than uh, the, the, the men, more graceful perhaps. Uh, but let's use them for an example. So they go out there and uh, they, they do their routine and it's impressive to watch you know, how they can walk on their hands and twirl in the air and land standing up and not fall. I mean, that's, that's impressive. Uh, and they do it in a matter of seconds. A minute or two. And then what happens? As soon as it's over. Judgment. Everybody's got an opinion. You have an opinion. Is that a 9? Is that an 8.5? Is that a perfect 10? All of the people in the stands, the stadium there, uh, they have an opinion. The TV commentators sure have an opinion. They'll let you know what it is. And they will actually tell you whether the judges made a good call or not. Uh, that's how judgmental they are. But none of that really matters. The only thing that really matters is what the real judges have to say. It, it's their judgment that matters, right? And so here's the encouraging thing for us in judgment. When you stand before the Lord, the Bible tells us that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But when you stand before the Lord, he's not going to judge you according to the way people who don't like you think about you. Or even the way that you might have thought that you should be judged. Scripture tells us that in, uh, in 1 Corinthians that you know, all of our works will be tested by fire. If it's wood, hay, stubble, you know, all of that will be burned up. Uh, and yet you know, the precious parts of the building of life, the, the precious stones and such, uh, will endure. And uh, you know, Paul goes on, on to say that you know, some will be saved yet as through fire. Their works are burned, but... You know, their salvation is, is still there. 
you know, I take that to mean that all the things we did that didn't really amount to anything or that might have amounted to harm will be burned up. And the things that remain are the things that are awarded to us at the judgment seat. Now, Jesus said, even a cup of cold water given in my name will not lose its reward. You know what he's saying to us? Your life matters. It matters what you do. It matters who you serve. It matters that you serve, even if it's only a small act. It matters. Everything you do matters. Your life matters. Every aspect of it. It all matters. Isn't it amazing how when you read Ecclesiastes and you read chapter you know, 1 through 11 and then get to chapter 12 and you read the first 12 verses and it all pretty much says the same thing, that life is meaningless, the pursuit of all the things you think will bring you satisfaction will really just bring you disappointment. And then you see the last two verses. The essence of life is to fear God and keep his commandments because the day of judgment is coming. You know that song, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one of my favorite hymns. Uh, there is a, a line there uh, which came to mind as I was you know, thinking about these verses. And in contrast, you know, we have 11 chapters and 12 verses out of 14 that, that, that say life is meaningless and the final two is life is meaningless. I mean, life is meaningful and meaning is found in fearing God and keeping his commandments because the, the time of, of judgment or accountability is coming. In that song, that, that phrase, one little word will fail him. It's as though Martin Luther got this idea from, from the preacher in, in Ecclesiastes doesn't take a whole lot of gospel to counteract all of the nasty, disappointing stuff that we've been part of. So, in conclusion, I want to... Uh, well, let me give you this little illustration because I said I'd come back to it and then we'll conclude. Uh, the, the, the word that is used in Scripture for judgment seat in, in Corinthians and Romans is the word bema. And uh, bema in the Greek culture uh, is the modern-day equivalent for the podium where athletes stand at the Olympics. It is the place where the medals are bestowed, where honor is bestowed. It is the, the place where... It is a proclamation that these people have uh, obeyed the rules and uh, have triumphed. And uh, that's the image that the Bible uses uh, in talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, I want you to understand that standing before the judgment seat is not to determine whether you go to heaven or to hell. That God takes all your good deeds and puts them on the scale over here and all of your bad deeds and puts them on the other side of the scale and whichever one is heavier, you know, uh, you might be 51% good and 
49% bad and, and you're in. But what if you're 51% bad and only 49% good? Well, you're out. But that's not how God judges. He does not judge us according to our sins. Who does he judge us according to? Or what does he judge us according to? He judges us according to what Christ has done on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. He died a shameful and painful death. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And God judges according, according to what Jesus has done on our behalf. And if we have received him, then we are treated as though we are Christ himself. That's good news, folks. That, that is the gospel. But what the judgment seat does is it tells us that how you lived as a Christian matters. All the things that you did, even the things that you thought for good or for bad, they matter. Now I want to conclude with a story from church history. Back in the late 4th century, there's a man named Eutropius, who was a close advisor, in fact, the closest advisor to the emperor Arcadius. Arcadius, uh, you probably never heard of him, and there's good reason because he was not a noteworthy emperor. Uh, he was a, a, a weak man and a, a weak ruler. And, and because he was weak, uh, there, there was a, a, a power vacuum that uh, seemed to emerge, and there was no shortage of people who wanted to fill that power vacuum. And Eutropius, uh, the trusted advisor, uh, was one who was looking to usurp that authority. Uh, but there was someone else who was a uh, rival with him uh, named Eudotia, Eudotia. So you had Eutropius and you had Eudotia. Eudotia was the wife of Arcadius, the emperor. And she knew better than anyone the weaknesses of her husband, the emperor, and uh, wanted to usurp that power. But uh, Eutropius got in the way. So what she did was uh, she organized a, a campaign to uh, condemn Eutropius, which she did, and uh, he was sentenced to death. So can imagine uh, Eutropius, you know, one day he's the second most powerful person in the Roman Empire. The next day, you know, he's condemned to die. So what he does is uh, he, he runs to church. Uh, there was a church building in, in those days called the uh, Hagia Sophia. Um, later it became a, a mosque and now it's a museum, but it's been there for, for centuries. So... Eutropius, that's where he runs. It was a, a church. And, and what he did was, was something that you see practiced in the Old Testament. He came and he grabbed hold of the altar. Actually, you know, the communion table is not an altar because we don't sacrifice anything. It's the table. But that's what he did. He, he grabbed hold of it. And that was to signify uh, that he had come under the, the, the sanctuary of, of God and to, for anyone to come and, and take him away uh, would, would be violating that, that holy uh, understanding. So he came in on a Saturday and hung on to the altar, the, the communion table. I'll just call it the table. 
And uh, next day, Sunday, and uh, the church was packed. Uh, I mean, there was drama going on. Uh, here you had the, the, the emperor's uh, trusted advisor who had betrayed him by wanting to uh, usurp his power. And you know, he's holding on to the communion table. And so uh, you have all the Christians who, who were there. They, they want to see the drama. But it's not just the Christians. Uh, it's a lot of people out there who uh, want, want to see the, the drama. So they want to know whether the, the pastor is going to turn Eutropius over to uh, the, the civil authorities or, or, or not. They, they want to see what he's going to do. So time for church came, and uh, the pastor who happened to be John Chrysostom, so if you're familiar with church history at all, Chrysostom um, is, is a noteworthy father of the faith. So uh, he gets up and uh, he starts to preach, and for his text, he uses this uh, familiar verse from Ecclesiastes. Life is a vapor. Life is meaningless. And so um, he goes on to uh, preach a, a powerful message, probably the most effective sermon that he ever preached and it was certainly dramatic and I want to quote just a, a couple of lines from uh, what he said you know as uh, Eutropius is here hanging on the, to the communion table Chrysostom is using him as an example of someone who was living the life that the preacher talks about all through Ecclesiastes and uh, here, here's just a couple of quotes from his sermon he said that um, Eutropius had become more wretched than a chained convict, more pitiable than a menial slave, more indigent than a beggar wasting away with hunger. Though I should try my very best, Chrysostom said, I could never convey to you in words the agony he must be suffering from hour to hour expecting to be butchered. Chrysostom did not stop there, however. His purpose was not to condemn Eutropius, but to save him. And also to give his listeners the gospel. And so he challenged his listeners to recognize the vanity of their own existence. Whether rich or poor, one day they would all have to leave their possessions behind. They too would face a day of judgment as Eutropius was vividly illustrating for them that day. The only hope that they would ever find, the only hope that Eutropius could ever find, was mercy at the table of the Lord. Chrysostom's sermon must have hit its mark. For as Chrysostom came to a close, he could see tears of pity streaming down the cheeks of people's faces. And when it came time to decide whether to extend mercy to Eutropius or turn him over to be executed, Chrysostom granted mercy. And so by the preaching of Ecclesiastes, a man was saved.
from certain condemnation. And that's the message in the book of Ecclesiastes. You you could live your life pursuing all of the things that look attractive to you, the things that money can buy, the things that pleasure promise, uh, the, the power promises. You can pursue all of that stuff. And even if you grab hold of it, you'll still come away feeling empty. But if you really want to find satisfaction in life, true satisfaction, it is to be found by fearing the Lord, keeping his commandments, knowing that even though you can't do it, someone has done it for you. And for that reason, we too can come to the table of the Lord and ask for mercy, and it will be granted. Let us pray. Father, as we consider the the words of this section of Scripture, uh, the the vanity of life, the, the vapor, the meaninglessness, the the hollowness of life apart from you. And we contrast that with the essence of what does give satisfaction. It's you. And because you are our creator and our redeemer and our judge, There certainly is motivation there to fear you. So, Lord, we we pray for a fear of the Lord. That we may go deeper than simple respect or, or reverence. But to know you for who you really are. And to know that even though you have the power to do with us whatever you please, the thing that pleased you most was to come in our place, to be born as a human being, live a perfect life, and die a cruel and shameful death for us so that you could treat us the way that Christ himself deserves to be treated. We pray for the the truth and the power of that gospel message to settle deep into our hearts and may it spill over and affect those around us wherever we go. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.